Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my podcast on Children in the Bible. The idea for this podcast started as I kind of wondered about the role children play in the Bible. I was curious to dig into what the Bible had to say about children, if much at all. So this podcast is really as much an education for me as I hope it is for you. First, can you think of any children that are mentioned by name in the Bible? Well, we have little baby Moses, perhaps just a mere infant, floating down the Nile in a basket, and we have sweet eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus lying in a manger. Oh, sorry, we don't know how much baby Jesus weighed. Just quoting from the dinnertime prayer of one of my favorite movies, Talladega Nights, I've always wanted to use that quote in a Bible study. Okay, other than Moses and Jesus, are there any more infants or toddlers or little children mentioned in the Bible? Yes, the answer is yes. Before we start this discovery of children and the role they play in the Bible, I want to explore for a moment a general idea of how children were viewed in the Bible. Granted, the Bible spans a period of thousands of years, but I think there are some patterns that emerge that can give us some clues as to, in general, how children were typically viewed by the societies discussed in the Bible. First, we have all the pagan nations, which were nations surrounding Israel. Israel was really located at the crossroads of civilization between Egypt and Mesopotamia. It seems that these nations had a rather low view of children and value placed on their lives. Some pagan nations, for example, worshipped a god called Moloch, M-O-L-O-C-H, whom they believed asked for child sacrifice. The Bible actually talks about this practice in Leviticus. Historians acknowledge that The fact that the terrible practice of child sacrifice has actually been practiced throughout the world for thousands of years. Often the sacrifice of young life was offered to a fertility god, which kind of seems counterintuitive to me. There were the Druids in Europe, the Aztecs, the Incas, and then a bunch of other groups in Central and South America, as well as Carthage in North Africa as part of their Baal worship were known to sacrifice children. But then we also have the Ammonites and the Canaanites living in Israel. They're mentioned in the Bible as also practicing child sacrifice. Now, not surprising, God prohibited Israel from child sacrifice. Leviticus chapter 20 verses 2 through 5 says, Say to the Israelites, Any Israelite or any foreigner residing in Israel who sacrifices any of his children to Moloch is to be put to death. The members of the community are to stone him. I myself will set my face against him and will cut him off from his people. For by sacrificing his children to Moloch, he has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. What do theologians and historians think the ancient Hebrews thought about their children. 
Okay, I'm going to say something weird. Did they consider them to be people? Understand, I know this is a strange question today, but it's important in understanding how they were treated in the Bible. In reading an article called, ironically enough, Did Ancient Israelite Think Children Were People? Uh, this was written in 2021 by T.M. Lemus. This question is addressed. Uh, the author starts out by saying that in the Bible, we see disagreements between Israelites about the personhood of children. And they use this as an example. This story is in 1 Kings chapter 3, 16 through 28. One day, two women came to King Solomon, and one of them said, Your Majesty, this woman and I live in the same house. Not long ago, my baby was born at home, and, th and three days later, her child was born. Nobody else was there with us. One night, while we were all asleep, she rolled over on her baby, and he died. Then, while I was asleep, she got up and took my son out of my bed. She put him in her bed. Then she put her dead baby next to me. In the morning when I got up to feed my son, I saw that he was dead. But when I looked at him in the light, I knew it wasn't my son. No, the other woman shouted. He was your son. My baby is alive. The dead baby is yours, the first woman yelled. Mine is alive. They argued back and forth in front of Solomon until finally he said, both of you say this live baby is yours. Someone bring me a sword. A sword was brought and Solomon ordered, cut the baby in half. That way each of you can have part of him. Please don't kill my son, the baby's mother screamed. Your majesty, I love him very much, but just give him to her. I, I don't want you to kill him. The other woman shouted, Go ahead, cut him in half. Then neither of us will have the baby. Solomon said, don't kill the baby. Then he pointed to the first woman. She is his real mother. Give the baby to her. Everyone in Israel was amazed when they heard how Solomon had made his decision. They realized God had given him wisdom to judge fairly. Well, that's just a quick example of how some people valued the life of children and some just saw them as property. We see throughout the Bible the awful practice of slaughtering innocent babies, often as a punishment or a threat, like in the story of baby Moses. This is why he was floating down the Nile. And then you have later the plague of the firstborn while they're in Egypt. And then the decree issued by King Herod after the birth of Jesus. But was childhood really valued by the Hebrew people? It seems that the answer is both yes and no. In general, personhood was based on your social role and your physical maturity, not chronological age. Among the ancient Israelites, there really was no specific age of adulthood other than the onset of puberty, which was often 13 for a boy and 12 for a girl which meant it wasn't unusual for 12-year-old boys and 13-year-old girls to get married. But we also know from biblical texts that having children was considered a blessing and strongly desired. Genesis chapter 1, 28 and chapter 9, verse 1 remind us of God's commandment to be fruitful and to multiply and 
Many of the biblical stories that we have focus on women concerned with carrying out this command. In biblical times, a female's life was seen as daughter, wife, mother. The social role of a woman was really centered on the home and the family and ensuring her family's future. Yet, barrenness or infertility were a reality for many ancient women, so much so that it was actually considered a disability. Think of the sorrow that Sarah, Abraham's wife, experienced, or Jacob's wife, Rebecca. My research has shown that there are actually six women who are considered barren in the Bible until God intervenes. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Genesis. Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, that's in 1 Samuel. The anonymous wife of Manoah, mother of Samson, that's in Judges. And the great woman of Shunem, also called the Shunammite woman. And she is an acolyte of the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings. In biblical times, even if a woman was fertile, families faced the reality of a high infant mortality rate of about 50% of all children dying before the age of five. I found that to be unbelievable. It's estimated that a woman who married in her teens and, and lived through her 40s would need to have six pregnancies just to have two or maybe three children, which honestly makes the stories of large families all the more remarkable. The Bible also tells us that women suffered deep shame when unable to conceive, and this was often considered to be some kind of hidden wrong or sin or personal flaw. As you might know, polygamy was often practiced during the time of the Old Testament, so many barren women would either turn to their slave or another wife to bear their children. Gosh, that just seems incredible to me. I don't think I'd be willing to do this. The Bible says that Sarah used Hagar for her first child, Ishmael. Rachel uses Billah. And Leah uses Zilpah. I think I honestly might have been more willing to resort to some of the interesting strategies they used to try to get you pregnant. There were herbal concoctions mentioned. Rachel used a plant called a mandrake. And then there was intercessory prayer. The Bible says Isaac prays for Rebekah. Abraham prays for the women in Abimelech's household. Hannah prays for herself and utters a vow that if she is able to give birth to a son, she would dedicate him to God. In the story of the wife of Manoah, the angel designates the promised son, Samson, as his right from the womb. According to the website Messianic Revolution, in many of the Bible stories about barren women, there is promised the much-desired son by either an angel or a messenger that heralds the birth. For example, while Sarah was hanging out in the tent, there were these three men 
slash angels who appeared to Abraham to announce the birth of a son to them in their old age. Sarah is going to give birth at 90. Similarly, Rebecca, she's given a like a vision uh, about the babies she's carrying. Jacob and Esau, they're going to be twins. And this vision says that they're going to be leaders of competing nations, Israel and Edom. And then the Bible says that God hears Rachel and remembers her. And then we have the wife of Manoah is promised a child who will save the Israelites from the Philistines. That's going to be Samson. And then we have Eli the priest. He promises Hannah that she's going to be granted what she wants. And then we have the Shunammite woman who has promised a child, even though she never asked for one, which I think is actually kind of funny. I find this fascinating, and I didn't arrive at this on my own. The website Jewish Women's Archive describes what happens to the sons of all these barren women mentioned in the Bible. In each of these stories, the life of the son is somehow either threatened or dedicated to God. Okay, first, Sarah's son Isaac. Well, he's bound on the altar, remember? Abraham's going to sacrifice him until the very last moment. Rebecca's son Jacob, he has to flee for his life from his murderous brother Esau. And then we have Rachel's son Joseph. He's nearly killed by his brothers and then sold into slavery. Samson, he's dedicated as a Nazarite to God. This gives him strength through his uncut hair. He has to wage a one-man battle against the Philistines, but ultimately Samson dies a martyr's death in the temple. Hannah's son Samuel is given over as a young boy to service in the sanctuary at Shiloh. And the Shunammite son, he actually dies, but then is brought back to life by Elisha. Okay, all of these Bible stories suggest that God who opens the womb has a right to demand the life that emerges from it. Wow. All that we have belongs to God, including our children. That's a hard one. Did birth order and sex of the child matter during biblical times? Yes and yes. Okay, well, this seems foreign to us today, perhaps. During biblical times, birth order and the sex of the child were really important. Men needed sons. Messianic Revolution website explains that there was a belief that this was the only way that men would live on was by having a male heir. They weren't focused on the idea of like heaven or hell after death, but only on the idea that by having a son could men ensure their existence after death. Therefore, it was a woman's duty to provide her husband with a son. Birth order was also important. The firstborn son would receive twice the inheritance of the next son. The firstborn son was given extra rights and extra responsibilities. 
Now, this is so interesting. God actually identified Israel as God's firstborn in Exodus 4.22 and also in Jeremiah 31 verse 9. As God's firstborn, Israel has a special place of privilege and blessing and special responsibility compared to all the other nations. Now, if you have a son, don't necessarily share this with your oldest, but in biblical times, the firstborn male was super important because he was believed to represent the prime of human strength and vitality. Since he was the first to come out, he must have all the best qualities of both parents. I guess the idea is that the well starts to run dry with subsequent children. (laughs) Now that's actually going to cause some family arguments. The firstborn son was also seen as the opener of the womb. The firstborn's birthright, or what we would call inheritance, as I said, involves a double portion of the household estate. And the firstborn son is the one who would assume leadership of the family if his dad dies or if he's absent for some reason. After the father's death, this oldest son would care for his mother until her death and also provide for any unmarried sisters. Again, think about if you want to share this info with your sons and daughters. Now, this is thought-provoking. In the Old Testament, firstborn humans and firstborn animals were considered sacred to God. Look this up. For example, after God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, he commanded the people to consecrate every firstborn male human and every firstborn animal to him. The dedication was a memory of God's great deliverance and a sign to their children that God brought them out of Egypt. Every symbolic act represented the Passover because remember the final plague against Egypt, God passed over the firstborn males of Israel because they were in their homes with the blood of the lamb as a sign on their doors. But the firstborn Egyptian males, including their livestock, were struck down. Did you know the firstborn could sell his rights? Yeah, Esau did this to Jacob. This is in Genesis chapter 25. Remember Esau, he and Jacob were twins, but Esau was born first. He sells his inheritance wait for it, for a bowl of stew. And all I'm going to say is that stew must have been really good. In taking his position as firstborn so lightly, Esau sinned against God and his family. Okay, but firstborns were not always guaranteed inheritance, even if they did want it. For example, the story of Jacob Jacob has 12 sons. His firstborn was Reuben. Reuben made a really bad decision by sleeping with Bilhah, his father's concubine. An act that demonstrated disrespect to his father and his family. So Jacob said, Reuben, step aside. Well then, numbers 2 and 3 of the sons also screw up. They 
do some violent acts against the Shechemites. This very savory story is told in Genesis 49. So in this case, now being number four was pretty lucky because this ends up being Judah. And Judah is the ancestor of King David. And eventually, Jesus comes from the line of Judah. Okay, fast forward to our New Testament and the birth of Jesus. According to gotquestions.org, the importance of the firstborn, okay, get ready, now reaches its apex in scripture in the person of Jesus Christ. All prior implications of the firstborn's role in the Bible really serve to illuminate Christ's preeminence over all creation and the family of God. Listen to this. The New Testament describes Christ as the firstborn many times. In an earthly sense, Jesus is Mary's firstborn son. Luke chapter 2 verse 7. Jesus is dedicated according to the law, and spiritually, Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. That's Romans 8, 29. The website continues. It says that in Colossians, the Apostle Paul writes, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, this use of the title firstborn for Christ echoes the wording of Psalm 89. And this is where God says of King David, And I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. In the book of Hebrews, Christ is called heir, H-E-I-R, heir of all things and God's firstborn into the world. This is so cool. Just as the firstborn son is head over the earthly family, Jesus is head of the body of Christ, the church, after God the Father. Just as the firstborn son receives the greatest inheritance from his father, Jesus receives the world as his inheritance. God says to his son, only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. I just find that fascinating. Okay, here's a few post-baby rituals that I think are kind of fun from biblical times. So, after the baby's born and and then they cut the umbilical cord, sometimes there was a special knife or a reed, gosh, I think that would have to be a really sharp reed, or a stone. And then, <laughs> this is the best, the baby was cleaned by rubbing it with salt or oil, after which it would then be swaddled. This is in Ezekiel, I'm not making this up. Okay, I, I just have so many questions about the salt and the oil, but I guess I'll save them for another time, but I just have to tell you, it brings to mind a Seinfeld episode where Kramer rubbed himself with butter and then sat out in the sun, and I just can't, I, I just keep thinking about that. Okay, it seems that, like today, most births were single births, but twins weren't unknown. There were laws, Levitical purity laws, that said that a new mother and her child had to be in seclusion 
for a period of time after the birth. Typically for a boy, this would be until the eighth day, and this would be the naming ceremony and the circumcision. Now, names are interesting in the Bible. They kind of provided a way for a parent to express characteristics the family wants the child to have, or an opportunity to know kind of what's going on during the birth process. So I think it's probably a good idea that we don't do this today because I think there'd be a lot of kids running around with swear words as names. Okay, but the Bible does give us a few names like Dan means God has judged me. Asher means happy or blessed. Shemaiah means Yahweh has heard. Jacob means trickster or grabbing the heel. Yeah, that's a good one. Esau, here's another good one, red and hairy. Oh, yeah. And then Benjamin, son of my right hand. So I find this so funny. In biblical times, women would use slings to carry their babies around, kind of like what women do today. But I also found this study that said that mothers would swaddle their children to hammocks for easy transportation. And then when they would reach the marketplace, mothers would hang up the hammocks with the baby inside on hooks while the mother would shop or sell her goods. Can you just imagine how funny that would look? There's a bunch of babies lined up in hooks at a market. Oh my gosh. Children were weaned by about the age of four and then were expected to learn gender-specific jobs. Baking and weaving were associated with the girls. Uh, they would continue to stay in, you know, the mom's world, learning how to make bread, household chores, care for younger children, and this is my favorite, gather dung. Yeah, that's right, they were on poop patrol because that's what they burned for fires. And then they would, you know, learn kind of the other rituals related to keeping a household. When the boys got old enough, which was about eight or nine, they would go with the men to watch over the flocks. Maybe newborn lambs, calves, they would protect them, make sure they didn't wander off. Boys were considered men when they grew their hair long and had facial hair, which I think would be a bummer if you were bald and couldn't grow a beard. <laughs> so as promised. Just want to take a few minutes to talk about a few remarkable children mentioned in the Bible. First, David. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, you know he fights Goliath, and scholars believe that when he did this, he was between the ages of 10 and 15 years old. Remember, he was just a shepherd, but he fought Goliath because none of the adults were brave enough. Now, in 2 Kings chapter 5, there's a story of an unnamed but brave little girl who boldly walks up to her master. He is the king's army commander, and she says to him that the prophet Elisha could cure his leprosy. And guess what? He listens to her, and he gets cured. Now, you might be familiar with the story of Daniel. Daniel, in chapter 1, verse 17, tells us that he's at the palace and he refuses to eat the palace food. Remember, 
He and many Israelites are captive in Babylon. Okay, scholars believe that when this story took place, when he stands up to the king and says, uh, no, I'm not going to eat that food because it's forbidden my, my faith. He was about eight years old. Okay, now, when my kids were little, they would sometimes refuse to eat certain foods, not necessarily for religious reasons, but they weren't risking their lives for refusing to eat lima beans. Isn't that extraordinary? Okay, what about the generous boy mentioned in the Gospel of John? He shares his entire lunch. Five loaves of bread, two fish. His mom probably packed it with a note like, I love you, honey. Have a great day. Don't share your food. Um, how many kids are willing to trade the contents of their entire lunch but not necessarily getting anything back like a Twinkie? This was a special young man. What about Mary? Her story, told in Luke chapter 1, 26 through 36, many believe she was only 12. Yeah, 12 years old when the angel Gabriel said, guess what? You're going to have a baby. How amazingly brave and faithful was her response, I am the handmaiden of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. In Kings, we have this story about Josiah. Did you know that Josiah was eight years old when he became the king of Judah? Yeah, that makes him a second grader. But he must have done a pretty good job because he was king for 70 years. This has been fun. We're going to bring this to a close. I hope you've learned a few interesting things about children in the Bible. But there are many more stories. This was not an exhaustive search. Check it out. Children are a part of God's creative plan, which is why God in Genesis 1.28 blessed Adam and Eve and said, be fruitful, increase in number. Children are a blessing and they need nurturing and guidance. Pray about how you can be a guiding light to the children in your life. Some may not have biological children, but we are all called to be a spiritual mother or father of all God's children. The Gospel writer John wrote in his third letter, 3 John 1, 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I'm going to end this podcast with a quote from the author, Tara Bianca. She says, Children are closest to God. They reveal creation. They are the embodiment of love and creation. Have a blessed day. Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are too. Thank you so much for joining Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing.